Hello and welcome to a slightly different episode of the Folklore Podcast, which I hope will be the first of an occasional series of in-conversation episodes, where I have the opportunity to chat with people whose work includes themes of interest to listeners here, but who don't specialise in the subject. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author, and in this episode I'm in conversation with TV producer and writer Rebecca Sonnenschein. Most recently, Rebecca was responsible for developing the TV adaptation of Archive 81, a drama series based on an original audio podcast of the same name, and which features all manner of cult activity, paranormal strangeness and much more. Rebecca's earlier work was on projects with which some of you may well also be familiar, in particular Vampire Diaries, for which she wrote a number of episodes. I spoke with Rebecca recently about her career and some of the folkloric themes in her writing and development. So, Rebecca, hi. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It is lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. So, um, just to clarify for people who are listening, this is going to be the first of an occasional series of kind of in-conversation episodes of the podcast, where we're not necessarily going to be dealing in-depth with the folklore paranormal kind of themes that that we do in a lot of other episodes but they will be there in the background and what we will be discussing will certainly be of interest to all of those listening who like those particular themes uh so rebecca um let's start if we may just for those that aren't familiar necessarily with your um career to date just with a little bit of a, a resume of um what you do and how you got involved with it sure um let's see well i started out as sort of in the film film world um i went to film school i wrote some films <laughs> they were very they're usually small indie films um i wrote several um one that we were going to talk about maybe is, is American Zombie. That's probably one of my favorites. And then um, I wrote a film called The Haunting of Molly Hartley. I wrote a film called The Keeping Hours, which is a ghost story. In television, I sort of transitioned into television when I got a job on The Vampire Diaries. I was there for five seasons and then I left to do a show for Cinemax um, work on a staff of a show for Cinemax called Outcast that was a lot of fun um, and then I moved over to ABC for a show called The Crossing which is a time travel show and then I ended up um, on the a show called The Boys which is a very dark superhero show and while I was on The Boys, I was developing this show for Netflix called Archive 81, and, and I got a green light. So I, I left The Boys um, reluctantly because <laughs> I really loved being with them on that show and moved into just doing my own show for Netflix, Archive 81. So you can see I, I do a primarily, well, all genre work. So it's all got some sort of mythology behind it of different sorts yes absolutely and i think anybody looking at your imdb page for example it will be clear that that there is a, a range of 
let's say supernatural themes amongst your work not not entirely you've got science fiction in there and 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 other genres as well but certainly there are a number of darker supernatural concepts in there why do you think that is particularly what draws you to that area in your work i really love to think about what if things were real? I think, I, I think that I'm very, I'm fascinated. I'm not religious person. I wasn't raised with religion, but I'm very interested in religion and why people believe the things they believe, what makes faith so appealing and so baked into, you know, the human experience really. And I think sometimes, you know, having the freedom of a, an outsider's perspective, like I, I have a very bird's eye view of all these things that I'm not, I don't have any baggage. And when it comes to like a, a any sort of religious, um, like I don't really believe in exorcisms or the devil, but I, I find them very fascinating as sort of a cultural sort of touchstone for the stories we tell. And they kind of cross many religions if you have a more bird's eye view of it, right? It's like, oh, these are similar themes that go through all sorts of, they're not unique. Um, they're just very human. So I guess I kind of love that. And I also find that it's a great way to, I sort of started out in maybe a more dra- like straight drama. Hmm. When I was first starting out, the first scripts I wrote were hu- kind of very human, small dramas and because those I love I love those films and I love working in that sort of sandbox, but it's just very hard to those those films started kind of disappearing from our pop culture. And I thought that I could because I was always a big fan of things that were like supernatural or any sort of genre, that I could sort of use that drama bent. It, in another genre. So I do think one of the great things about these dark themes with dark darkness and kind of supernatural um, threads is that the stakes are very high. Mm. They're, so they're not artificially high, right? They they're high so that you can, your drama feels more grounded to me. <laughs> I feel like the drama and like the personal sort of threads and the you know, the wants and desires and quests of the characters and how they relate to each other and, you know, how they love and how they interact with the world. All those things can be very grounded and real because you have these stakes that are very high as opposed to trying to artificially sort of elevate the stakes in a, in a more, me- in a, like a straight melodrama. Sometimes that feels less real yeah. than a very dark genre piece and i suppose traditionally as well a lot of these themes they're they're used historically as cautionary tales as well they're they're kind of you must not do these things or something bad will happen you must not go to these places or something bad will happen and is that maybe a, a way that you can also springboard into telling some of these stories too i think yes very much so but i also think that they're used by people for that very reason, right? People, um, it's a way of manipulating people as well um, by by doing that very thing, which is like telling a cautionary tale. But I'm very interested in how stories function in our lives Mm -hmm. and in, in every 
in every way, humans are storytellers and they listen to stories and that's what shapes us as a culture, as a, you know, as a country, as a, as a little, you know, our little pods of people that we're with these stories. And I think, yes, they are cautionary tales, but I think they're weaponized by people. And that is also something I'm very interested in, like how people manipulate other people and conversely, how people really convince themselves to believe in something and convince themselves that it's for good. Um, It's kind of all part of the human, like our human weakness. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I guess so. Um, Belief is a very strong thing, isn't it? For people in in a lot of ways and and no matter what you believe in, if if you have belief or faith in something, you are going to interact with it very strongly in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Or it, it also is something that people seek, you know, mm. and a lot of people are seekers for the, what, something to believe in. I think, I think our, what, you know, our society right now, we see people looking for something to believe in. And sometimes we, we think how, with all of the knowledge we have, how do people believe things that just don't have any backup in science or rational thinking and that's fascinating to me because that's how strong the desire to believe, maybe even to fracture into small groups, you know, whether it's a cult. I, I think a lot of things are cults, but you want to believe and you want to be surrounded by other people who believe. Yeah. So even just that desire is extremely strong, even if people spend their whole life sort of seeking it or searching different things for it and never quite land. Um that's just fascinating. Yes, I, it really is. Let's have a look at some of the projects that you've worked on then um, and explore those themes and, and how you use them and, and why they worked in the way you did. Now, you mentioned American Zombie, so let's start there because that's that's quite early on in your progression, isn't it? 2007, you uh, that, yeah. that came out. Um, I'm going to ask you to summarise these productions for people because... We have people who listen from all over the world and obviously some territories may never have seen some of these or, or know particularly about them. So we're trying to avoid too many spoilers if we can, but probably ought to give a spoiler warning that it might happen here and there occasionally. Um, so, yeah, uh, summarise American Zombie for us. American Zombie is uh, what we like to call a fictional documentary. Um, it's about zombies living in Los Angeles and we, you know, zombies kind of come and go in pop culture. This is kind of before they came, before The Walking Dead became a television series. So they weren't quite as popular. They're kind of on a downturn. And we sort of, we kind of were there looking at it as sort of a social commentary on, we follow four zombies. It all culminates in some things going terribly wrong um, but it was very much a, it was very much sort of a political satire while maybe making a new, a slightly new mythology about zombies. Zombies are a very um, flexible mythology. They've had lots of incarnations. And I think the George Romero zombies are what people think of as real zombies, but there are lots of, there's lots of mythology that predates that. Mm-hmm. So, and, it, and obviously from there, it kind of expanded into different kinds of, you know, different kinds of mythologies. 
but we had a lot of fun doing that. I worked with Grace Lee and she is a documentarian and I had been doing some work in documentary films too. So we were very committed to the reality of the form. I suppose in some respects, I mean, it is a satire. It's so it kind of, it doesn't take itself too seriously in some aspects uh, and probably does more so in, in others. I think it's probably fair to say. Um, I think, there's something about the zombie genre, isn't there, that despite the kind of horrific undertones to it, often seems to invite a lot of comedy or or, or more light-hearted storylines. Even, you know, in um, films like Evil Dead, I suppose, and, and things like that, there's a lot of black humour in it. Why, when yeah. you have such a, a, a potentially horrific concept does that seem to come to the fore I know that's interesting isn't it I think one of the reasons that it feels very there's something kind of down well this is particularly for zombies you know they're kind of down and dirty right they're not Mm -hmm. vampires and vampires are like sort of like royalty or beautiful and zombies are ugly (laughs) because they're rotting they're decaying and they're also human right? They're a shell of a human. And there's just something about kind of the, the gritty little nature that can be either terrifying or absurd. There is something absurd about the concept of, you know, human humans continuing on after they are dead. It kind of upends everything we know, we think about as death, Um, but not in like a sexy way. It's kind of, um, yeah, like you've been put something's pushed put through the washer, you know, it's just like mm. sort of grungy. <laughs> and I think there's something funny about that. And also, like I said, it, it's very malleable, like the concepts of zombies. So we sort of leaned into like, what would, like the, the logic starts to fall apart unless you, you really like just commit. So like, what is zombie art? Like we really, I think going into the the details of what what would that mean if people continued to live after they were dead? Um, there's certain bodily functions that would break down and either you can ignore that, uh, like Walking Dead and just sort of play the horror, or right. you can think about well, what, what does that smell like? What does that look like? Do they want to be, is, you know, our zombies had consciousness. We had different levels of zombies, so they weren't they weren't just empty vessels. They had personalities still. And it was like, it was kind of almost like a weird, you know, immigration mythology or metaphor and a political metaphor. And those are just funny. It's, it's a vehicle for examining the way we sort of approach problems in our society or problems with our bodies. (laughs) Did, did you use the kind of, traditional zombie approaches when you were writing that i mean not necessarily the filmic ones although i'm sure that's part of it but but the actual kind of religious historical folkloric zombie we did we didn't i mean i think you know the the kind of the literary tradition of zombies is is more of a you know caribbean you know raising the dead with spells Hmm. Um, and 
using them and it's kind of a magic thing, we kind of leaned into a very sort of weird scientific bent and, um, you know, they were, it was caused by a virus and it left people dead technically, but with differing levels of brain function. So I think what we did was kind of take a concept and then really use the documentary form to play it very straight, play it very straight as if we were examining, we're kind of in some ways making fun of documentaries too. We, we hit everybody. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the fun of it was like kind of not using some of the more traditional elements of zombies, uh, but using it as a vehicle to sort of, I don't know, poke fun at all sorts of things that we do. <laughs> kind of the spinal tap of the zombie world isn't it i suppose in a way yeah yeah it definitely has sort of shades of that and i think like like those christopher guest sort of movies they're very specific like our our film was very specific and that was the fun of it. it was just being really really um getting into the granular details of things which just is by nature funny yes yeah. Now you followed that up the next year, 2008, with The Haunting of Molly Hartley, a very different film uh, and a very yeah. different storyline. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, my gosh. So I, I came into that film like as a rewrite and I was like, I did a rewrite and then a bunch of other people did a rewrite and then I came back to it. And it always had this concept, which was a girl who who had nearly died at birth was her parents made a deal with the devil that she would live, but they would, that the devil would come take her (laughs) when she turned 18, Um, which is a very fun concept. So it was, yeah, it was definitely based in very kind of traditional, you know, literary beliefs, very Faustian, you know, sort of, it was pretty. It was pretty straightforward. Mm. I mean, it is a very strong uh, element of a lot of folk tales, isn't it? This kind of um, not only the pact with the devil, but then going on to to having to outwit the devil in order to, <laughs> you know, ultimately get your own way. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a popular trope, isn't it? Whether you're religious or not, I suppose it's just. Uh, there's, there's something about that whole concept that is is just good to explore. Yeah, it's it's making a deal. It's um, it, I think what it does is lean into that um, a, a slightly different way of looking at why people believe in the things they believe. But it's leaning into the idea that humans, it's kind of baked into humans. We want more than we have, hmm. right? We want something greater than what we actually have. So we often cause our own horror. It's kind of not, it's kind of the opposite of looking at things in a cosmic horror way. It's more about we humans are responsible for things. And yes, you can be tempted, but the truth is, is that people, you know, in these stories, they make a deal, but it's because they love someone so much. It's like a mix of greed and love and, they think they're doing the right thing. Um, You know, some stories are about like, I want to be famous, but 
a story like this, which was interesting. It was like, I want my child to live and I don't care what happens. And people make the, have to make those decisions on smaller scales every day, right? They have to make these little hard decisions and, you know, question like their, the morality of things. And so this is just like a bigger like version of that. Um, and it is kind of, yeah, I guess it is kind of a cautionary tale. But then there's always this idea that you could outwit the devil. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe like goodness prevails, <laughs> maybe then it becomes a fight between good and evil, even though you've, somebody's made this deal on your behalf. Those kind of things are interesting to explore. Yeah, I think the, the other thing that's interesting, though, I think, uh, is that, you know, everybody says, well, that there are only seven stories. When you when you break it down, there there are seven stories, and and everything that you write fits into one of those categories. I'm, I'm not sure I entirely agree that, <laughs> that, that that is the case, but I think it is certainly the case that there are arguments to say that the traditional folk tales or literary tropes slot into pretty much you know, every story in some way. So they're all drawing on something that that kind of is much older, even in modern tales, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. And and the interesting thing, of course, is that in, in these, like whether they're come out of a, you know, Christian tradition or they come out of like a folk tr- tradition, like the fairy, fairy tales, and you look and like across cultures, right? They're like the same stories. Oh, yeah. So yes, I mean, right there, they've got to be baked in somehow mm-hmm. with like very basic human experience. Um, and obviously you just have to imagine people have been telling these stories well before ever anything was ever recorded history. It's just, that's how we, that's how, why we're human is that we tell stories. Yeah. And it's the cultural interpretation of those themes, yeah. isn't it? That, that then develops the different types of story. Um, yeah. Now you, you mentioned it uh, a little bit earlier on, but, but before there were sparkly teenage vampires, um, there was vampire diaries, which, which ran um, for five years, 2011, 2012. It was, um... yeah. It ran. It ran. Um, it ran eight seasons. I was on it for five. Yeah. 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 Now, now you. I think probably more people will be familiar with this than than perhaps the the first two that we've covered. But we probably ought to still give a very brief summary of, of <laughs> the concept of Vampire Diaries. Yes, Vampire Diaries is about two brothers who are vampires who fell in love with the same girl in the past it's different in the books than it is in the, in the show In the show that was in the, um, the 1860s. And then she turned, she, the brothers weren't vampires. She was a vampire. She turned them into vampires. Um, and then many years later in the present, which at the time was, uh, 2010, maybe, uh, they come, they come back to their home and they find that her doppelganger, um, Elena, and they both fall in love with her again. And it's a love triangle and with two brothers who are vampires. And yeah, that's kind of, and lots of bad like characters come through and there's lots of mythology and 
vampires often kind of have a very kind of like a religious thread to them, but I, mm. this show was not, it was very, um, really avoided any sort of like Christian tropes. So. Yeah. Now, now this is like different as well, because you're, you're part of a writing team for this show and, yeah. and it's a long running show and it's drawing on, um, story elements. Well, in one sense are very old and very well established the whole vampire concept and then on the other hand it's drawing from a set of books that already exist and tell the story too so with all that in mind is it a very different kind of writing experience do you have a very strict style sheet and guidelines that you have to write to do you have to develop your vampires in a particular way for example yeah i joined in this third season so at that point the characters were well established the books gave a sort of a base for the show but it they it they it definitely moved away from the books pretty quickly so they kind of were on their own tracks they're their own it, it exist in the same shared universe but they're they're different and but they we weren't following any story from the book uh, by the time i got there so so it is all about when you work in a writer's room on a very serialized mythology show that would run for 22 episodes a season. You spend a lot of time coming up with your mythology for the season. Obviously there's mythology that's established in the world. One of, one of those things was, um, you had daylight rings. (laughs) And then one one of those, that was just one of those things that, um, was very cool, but it also allowed us to actually shoot, so many episodes because we couldn't shoot everything at night. It's just, Mm. it's not possible. It's just not possible on a long running show like that, or a a show that has that many episodes to just always be shooting at night unless you're faking it all the time, which you don't want to do. So, Um, but then we would come up every season, like who's our big, our bad guy. And we would kind of break the season into a few parts so that we could have these little mini arcs and looking for villains and different sort of mythologies and, it's really you you have a mythology and then you just keep building it out right and so i'm not sure you know there were there were like doppelgangers and um there's witches and there were werewolves and there were um hybrids of witches and vampires and that's kind of what we stuck to. Um, I think maybe they've gone on to other things in the expanded universe now, but that's kind of what the sandbox we were playing in. And yeah, we used, a, we used a lot of witch mythology though. I have to say we were always looking for, because that is the, that that's the broadest and, and vampires had, you know, a witch quality to them. They were kind of made by a spell in our show. So everything kind of came back to witchcraft. And so that's kind of the thing that we kept coming back to was like elements of witchcraft and different, you know, traditions of that. Was there, was there a lot of research involved in that or, or do you have carte blanche to kind of develop your own mythology based on very nebulous ideas? I would say that (laughs) it was pretty open. Like we were not, we were not scholarly, right? We're just, we're just making up good entertainment. I definitely was, I think one of the reasons that I came onto the show was that I do, I am a mythology person. I did have a lot of like, I know a lot about 
um, folklore and, and, and witches and, you know, monsters, those things, that's interesting to me. So I would definitely bring in a lot of my own ideas, you know, that I've been reading about. Um, but then we would just make it our own. So everything, it's not like all original stuff, but it is like to, it's, it's not like we can say, oh, this is from this line of <laughs> literary tradition. Yeah, we just, yeah. We were all often trying to make things fit into a, sto- a story point, mm. right? And because we, we told a, a very complicated stories. So then yeah. we would think, oh, what mythology can fit into here? But we were very careful with our mythology. I think we took a lot of pains to, we would say, kick the tires on anything we came up with and not contradict ourselves. Mm. It, it got very complicated by later seasons yeah yeah but you know that if you start to do that and and you're not consistent then there are people who are going to start going oh but in season two episode three you said this yes and now you're saying that yeah i was definitely that person for a long time i'd be like (laughs) what about episode three you know of season four where we did i i just kind of have a i just naturally have a brain that works (laughs) like that yeah um, so I was the annoying person who would often bring up our inconsistencies, but then all you have to do is fix it. It's yeah. not a big deal. It's like, oh, but we could do this instead or so. Yeah. There's a way out of most things. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there isn't a kind of overarching story arc, I suppose, across the whole of Vampire Diaries, but certainly in season there are, there are plenty and plenty of character arcs, which were the most interesting do you think to to write for I think you know it was really a love story was the kind of the overarching story of the of the series um for me I really I loved I really liked writing for Stefan because Stefan was torn about being a vampire you know and I think that's a really interesting mythology there's a wish fulfillment element right to being a vampire because you live forever and you're always young. Um, so lost boy is sort of, <laughs> you never get old. Um, but I, but he was kind of angsty and I, I liked that. I felt like that was something real to hook into. Do you want to live or die? Do you want to live for do you want to live forever? That's, that's the thing. And all the baggage that comes with living forever that was an interesting character element to do. My favorite season that we did was our, we kind of got, we went way out there, but there in season six, we kind of had this idea that there was a whole new sect of witches. And then there was a prison world wherever there was a repeating day. And then that kind of led into this revelation that there was another prison world with a bunch of witch vampire hybrids and um, I think we call them the heretics. Anyway, that was a lot of fun because it was really heavy lifting mythology, but we also got to be very specific about all those new characters we introduced. So there was a lot going on in that season and it was very fun. Yeah, see, I, I have to have issues with the repeating day trope because Ground Dog, Groundhog Day is a film that just makes my skin crawl and I can't put my finger <laughs> on why. There's just something about it that's just... Yeah, that was yeah. an inter- that so our we did do a repeating day episode, a real one, because we felt like every good genre show has to do one. But that one was like the whole season was sort of an interesting, like a little bit of a spin on it because they weren't doing the same things. The day just repeated so mm. that it never moved forward. So that 
it was an interesting new spin on the repeating day. It was just, it's not like they did the same thing and woke up. They were, they were present all the time. It's just that the day never went forward. Yes. Yeah. I can deal Um, with that one a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Later (laughs) we did another one where I, I was, we were very excited, I think to do that because it is like, it's a rite of passage for every big mythology show genre show to do their repeating day episode. Mm -hmm. And, um, Ours was about being stuck in some sort of gemstone sword. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about Archive 81 in just a moment, but I want to touch on one more um, production first, which kind of comes out of um, the themes of Molly Hartley in a way, because it deals with the devil and, and... possession in this case and things like that and that's outcast which again you mentioned before again kind of i suppose in a way ties in with the whole um zombie concept in in so far as rob kirkman's graphic novels um for walking dead and and outcast have, have both been developed um Outcast. I I really enjoyed Outcast, and I think it was cancelled before its time. Um, now let's 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 just summarise where it went uh, as far as it went. <laughs> yeah, it was about um, a young man, Kyle Barnes, and he had this ability to is seeming ability to exercise people who had been possessed. And he didn't know why he had this ability or what kind of possessions these were, but he, yeah, he found himself, you know, he's not a religious man. This is not um, in the Christian, the Catholic tradition, or even the Protestant tradition of exorcism. It's a very, (laughs) um, he's kind of recruited as an adult by the, uh, the Reverend to, help him exercise people so it was a very kind of interesting maybe a little bit of a spin on um traditional exorcism stories that we've seen a lot of uh, it was kind of a it had really had religious elements to it but ultimately the mythology proved that that it wasn't uh, it was not a religious tradition at all uh, we can celebrate this one, of course, over here as well, because it had Philip Glenister in it. So we've got a, right. a, a good Brit actor there in the in the yep. mix as well. Um, now you're producing at, at this stage and not writing. That's right, isn't it? Oh, I was writing. One? Yeah, oh, I was writing. writing. As, writing as yeah, in television, we're basically writer producers. Okay. So even when we're we don't have a producer title, we're producing. Um which means you go to set and you produce the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even when you're just a lowly nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. I think, I think on a, a lot of productions over here, it, it works probably a little bit differently. And, and yeah. you know, the writer and the producer yeah. are, very, are very separate people, but um, yeah, no, we're the same in, in t- here in TV. Okay. So you, and, and you're developing at this stage um, from graphic work um, rather than from, uh, a written storyline as you as you were in some respects with Vampire Diaries, I guess. Um, is that a very different approach to take? Because I, I recall um, certain parts of Outcast, which um, in my mind still look exactly like comic book frames mm-hmm. on screen, which, which I think is, is probably a very deliberate thing. Yeah. Um, 
Is it a very different process working in that way? No, it's actually the same. I joined that in the second season. They'd done a first season um, and they we the mandate or whatever, the, the way we shot the show was very like, let's take, like, let's try and make things have this element of comic book frame to them, like that have been portrayed in the comic books. And, but it is very, it is a very kind of grounded approach. So it's kind of dark and um, it was really beautiful. I thought a show was really beautifully shot. It had really beautiful sort of frames and tableaus and really wonderful actors. Like, so it was a really interesting kind of, it was very adult. <laughs> it was great to move. It was really interesting to move into that world. Um, but I think we were, you know, you have to have some free, we kind of had certain things that we knew that we needed to stay in line with, but, but it's, it's really a really similar process. It's you brainstorm, you figure out where your story is going you complicate your mythology, you complicate your characters. Um, this is all kind of going from a first season into a second season. You build out the world, you build out the families. And, and so it's kind of, you know, you start with, usually in your first season, you start with some stuff. And then in your second season, you start painting in the leaves and the branches, the little twigs, you know, <laughs> if you're talking about like draw, drawing a tree, it's really, unless you're doing an anthology series, which I've never, I've never done. I, it's like just getting, like you're kind of zooming in on the characters and details and while like heightening the stakes. So it's mm. very, it's a very similar process. Were you particularly disappointed that that one was canceled when it was? Yeah, definitely. I loved um, the showrunner of that was Chris Black, who's like an amazing person and so fun to work with. And I, we really hoped that it could find a new home. Mm -hmm. Cinemax kind of stopped making those kind of shows. That's kind of, that's basically, they just kind of got out of that business. <laughs> so I think they are looking for a new home for a while, but didn't find one ultimately. So yeah, it was sad. And um, Patrick Fugit is so, such a great actor. Like they're really great actors and they're really nice people. Um, so it was fun. It was fun. And we shot in this place called um, Rock Hill, South Carolina. So it, it's very like Southern Gothic, mm. dark, woodsy, like a sen the sense of place. I think you can really feel it when you're watching it. Yeah. You can feel it when you're driving around there and on set too. There's like, <laughs> like it just had a very rich, like sort of, um, it had a very rich sort of visual style. Yes. And yeah. I think that really carries a lot because we were kind of playing against that weird Southern Gothic tradition because there was a, a much more like alien, like explanation for the, possessions so there's something that just really gr grounded it in that strange mythology that it felt like oh e even though we're kind of saying that this is like a more science it's actually more science fiction than it is um, yeah yeah religious but religious horror but um yeah it's just it's, it was really fun I think it had a long way to go, certainly. And it, it, it is disappointing. I mean, the, the, particularly the American drama market is such a cutthroat business in terms of keeping seasons yeah. going. You know, 
some, something like America Horror, American Horror Story, which reaches season ten, is 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 really going a long way. Um, yeah. And you know, the, there are ones that have been particularly disappointing to to see go early. Um, and I mean, I, just picking a couple out of the air, I suppose something like The River, which was cancelled after one season, but had a great twist at the end of it which was really unfortunate but then the flip side of that is that sometimes you can get advanced warning can't you and there was um thinking about other supernatural stuff there was uh 666 park avenue which was a show that was cancelled after one season but had enough warning that they could rewrite the end of it to bring Mm -hmm. closure um is it a bit galling when you don't get to close stuff off the way that you should (laughs) for sure yeah i think you feel because you know what you want to do mm. and you realize you've left people in the lurch. You're, you're bringing them on a ride, you know, and then it's like, Oh, sorry, everybody get out of the car. <laughs> I don't mean it. The ride stops here. Um, so it's, it is disappointing and, and it feels disappointing to you think about other people. Mm, yeah okay i I want to finish off by talking about archive 81 which is which is a current production and has not been (laughs) cancelled yeah (laughs) exactly um and again is developing another different genre because archive 81 is was still is um a podcast so you are developing from a purely audio based format into something that's very again richly visual in many respects how did that whole uh commission come about because archive 81 is not one of the it probably is now but at the time of the commissioning was not one of the biggest ranking podcasts around yeah it was it's an indie audio drama so they kind of were at the forefront of audio drama. And now there are very professional companies coming in with, you know, a whole new level of making audio drama. But I was actually, I, I actually don't really, um, I'm not an audio drama. Like I'm not a fanatic. I don't listen. I, I mostly listen to news podcasts. So I was actually brought in by Netflix and the production company Atomic Monster to sort of develop develop it they started developing it and um, they brought me in to say, well, what would you do with this? And it just seemed to hit all my, you know, my be in my wheelhouse and hit a lot of the things that I like to do. And it also had this device of sort of analog film and video that I, I started out as a, you know, sort of in the film world. So I, I really loved just the idea of that. Um, and it, it was a cult story, which I, I'm really drawn to. So, mm. yeah, they we, brought we me should in. probably we should probably summarize the basis of it for anybody that hasn't listened to oh, yeah. it or, or watched it, um, because the the podcast has been running for some time and has obviously gone a lot further in a lot of different directions. The main yeah. thing about the podcast is it is essentially found footage in in audio form yeah. and and very strictly follows those guidelines. Um, yes. which works really well to its advantage. Um, where, as yeah. far as the Netflix series, has this story developed so far? Yeah, so basically the story is about um, 
a guy named Dan Turner who is offered a job. He's he's a he works in film restoration. And he is offered a job by a man named Virgil Davenport to restore a set of tapes that were damaged in a fire in 1994. Um, But the only, the only trick is that he has to go to this remote compound to do it. And so he feels like there might be a personal connection to the tape. So he takes the job and he unwrap, he starts unraveling the story that he finds on these tapes, which is about a woman named Melody Pendris who went to, was making sort of a, a little, she said she's making a dissertation, working on her dissertation, but that was really a front for look. She's looking for her mother. Um, and so she's making a documentary, little documentary film. It's kind of like a, an oral history on video. Um, but it's kind of a, it's, she's not really doing that. She's, <laughs> she's trying to like get information about what might've happened to her mother. And slowly she realizes something weird is going on in the in the building and Dan, as he's watching, realizes that he is, has a very, there's a connection between their lives and yeah, this kind of goes from there. Uh, This is my absolute favorite thing of all the things that you've worked on in so many ways. Um, This is a podcast. I am a podcast. I I also run, um, the Folklore Library and Archive, which is an archive. Uh, I do a lot of work in digitising old materials. Um, I've I've, um, done presentations with people on cults in the past. And so so it's like everything that I've done is is in this. Uh, We binged this season pretty quickly, let's be honest. Uh, Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it it absolutely is. And I suspect it was a lot of fun to do. Um, Did you have fairly free reign to develop it in the way that you wanted to go alongside the original story or did you have to stick to a lot of what had come first I basically had free reign um which was great um I think because it was a very you know it was sometimes when you're developing really well-known um material you have you it's you are not given the freedom to stray as much um, but I was given the freedom to sort of do, obviously, you know, the, the podcast is, the, sh- the episodes are quite short in season one um, and it is all found footage. So I needed to, you know, build out the story and the world and, you know, in a TV friendly way. So I just had to sort of take big swings. And I like to say that, you know, the podcast there's an archive 81 narrative universe and we exist in it and the podcast exists in it. And we diverge pretty significantly from the podcast in many ways, but I like to think we all have the same DNA, you know, Mm -hmm. cults are a a problematic subject in many respects to deal with. Um, It it certainly doesn't deal with the concept of cults in a problematic way. Um, in in an area where you could get caught out were you very conscious of how to deal with that kind of aspect of it well again I think I have this kind of you know objective view of what cults are religion (laughs) religions are cults you know they're just really big cults and that's or that's how I sort of see them and that's how many people classify them um but I kind of have the 
you know, dealing with a cult is interesting. It's like, where did it come from? How has it persisted? How old is it? Um, I, I think one of the thing, one of the big influences on kind of my way of thinking about cults was there's a book called Alone in Her Sex, which is about the cult of Mary that existed over time and was trying to snuffed out by the church, you know, no, don't worship the woman, you know? Mm. (laughs) Um, And I've always really kind of kept that in my wheelhouse about how cults develop and persist and who carries the torch and how sometimes that torch is snuffed out and how it comes back again. So in that respect, I guess I wanted to just be, I mean, we have very specific mythology for the cult that was not never all made it into the show, but we had a very like a long sort of history of it and the why now of it. And I feel like we're living in an era of cults. I I feel like we're always living in an era of cults. Like that's just human nature. Right. Um, Yeah. So I'm very drawn to things that people want to believe in and not just believe in, but they want to, they want to know. I think one of the things about cults as people are seeking knowledge and seeking meaning in their life, but they also want to want to know something that other people don't know. Mm. So there's a little bit of that, like, Oh, I have a secret. We have a secret. So that's kind of where some of that, those ideas in archive 81 came from. Did you draw on particular aspects of um, historical cults? Because there are some tropes in there that I, I guess are similar, or did you very much want to go with your own mythology for that? I think there's lots of like, tr- like uh, tropes in there, but I'm very interested in sort of the way that faith and cults change over time to this one is particularly a long, long cult, but like, you know, I'm very interested in the cult, all the cults that sprung up in like the early part of the 20th century. That is really fascinating to me. Um, I'm, spiritualism, that was kind of, that was earlier, but had a resurgence, theosophy. There's just a lot of, but the, but this has a, a more folky, a, a more of a folklore element to it, um, I think. And it's, you know, I just, I loved kind of like making a magical mix of all kinds of things. I also like, I was in my mind, I went to film school, but I minored in art history with a specialization in pre-Columbian art of the Americas. So there's also all that religious stuff that comes into um, kind of all intermingles with a Judeo-Christian like sort of tradition. Were you surprised, pleasantly surprised at the response that Archive 81 got because it certainly over here has has been particularly popular (laughs) yeah I'm very excited I mean it's a very I think we set out to make a show that felt a little bit like a throwback but also felt very specific and it's not you know I didn't think it was for broad broad appeal because it's very dark it's very adult you know it does kind of skate the edge of some things that might <laughs> that is like maybe blasphemous to some people, but just I just look at it as a different way of looking at religion and faith and art. Um, so yeah, I'm a little surprised, but also we we just worked really hard to make a show that we loved, and we kind of took some of our 
tradition. I, uh, the, some of the other writers on this show are people I've worked with before, but some of them are from Vampire Diaries. And we have a way of telling stories that we think is entertaining, you know, <laughs> um, and like sucks you in. And that's yeah. what we tried to employ with also these other things that were a little more like offbeat. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited how much people seem to enjoy it. Religion, yes, definitely. Horror, yes, definitely. There's perhaps a bit of commentary on corporate business in there as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's kind of all about, I mean, I, I tend to view corporate, you know, culture through the lens of, you know, it's greed. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, you know, coming off, I just, I, before I, I did the show, I worked on the boys and that's all about corporate, like sort of malfeasance. And I think some of that comes into this too. I just think it kind of, um, this entrepreneurial, like there's something similar about, you look, like people, cult leaders employ CEO tactics, you know, it's all kind of the same thing. So so to finish off, uh, between you and me, because obviously there's nobody else listening at the moment, can we look forward to a greenlit season two fairly soon of this? Oh my gosh, I hope to hear really soon. We have broken the second season. We have all kinds of cool stuff to do. We have another flashback, which is, I love. I love these flashback episodes, just a, a, a way to tell, a, a, give a different lens on something and a different style. So we're ready um but we're still waiting to hear so yeah. fingers crossed yeah yeah well um just let us know when we all need to start um tagging netflix in our tweets and, <laughs> and we'll be there uh oh my gosh me, thank me, you me and, me and the rest of the podcast audience will be behind it um awesome. what else are you working on at the moment um yeah i've been i have a couple pieces of um called developments kind of sounds cheesy but um there's some projects that i am very like i've they're very close to my heart. Um, one is horror. One is sort of a more classic um, literary uh, piece of uh, in IP. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I like to do something different. Like archive is very, um, you know, it's very rich and very, it's a little pretty serious for me um, coming from like the boys and vampire diaries, which are basically real snarky. Um, so I'm looking I'm like, I have one of them is comedy and one of them is just like, there's going to be no F bombs in. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like to mix it up basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I shall hope to see all of them in due course. Rebecca, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and discuss your work. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this little diversion into a slightly different area of the folklore world. If you did, or indeed if you didn't, please let me know your thoughts. You can tweet me at FolklorePod or email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com with those thoughts. I'm very grateful to Rebecca for taking the time to come on and chat about her career. Unfortunately, since we recorded, Netflix have taken the decision not to greenlight Season 2 of Archive 81, despite its large following and quite a backlash on social media. I hope that another company picks it up for production. It would be fascinating to see where Rebecca and her team were going to take the story, especially as Season 2 of the audio version is very different from Season 1.
The Folklore Podcast and the Book Club are independent podcasts aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Please, tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this does come at a cost. If you want to help us to continue, please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information. Patreon supporters get extra content and rewards, which includes folklore materials which support the themes of our episodes in more detail. Your support is the only thing that keeps our content viable, so thank you for any help you can give. You can also make a one-off donation on the website. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>